So the first 16 days of May, well, 16 out of the first 21 days of May, our friends on the Navajo Reservation had a more interesting and difficult time than we did. They were locked out of Gallup, at least those that were in the county of Gallup. It's a big reservation. There are lots of places on it, but they're not many big cities. Gallup is one of the biggest in McKinley County. It is the only city. Some of you watched as... I and some others posted on social media, media about what was going on, but it was an interesting moment for a number of reasons. First, the, the governor of New Mexico and the mayor of Gallup locking out 50,000 Navajo people from their county's resources. That was water, food, and medical attention. And their options were limited of where they could go. On top of that, it was with short notice. We were watching as friends of ours found out after heading to Gallup with an hour's notice that it had already been closed and that they could not get in. These were people, by the way, who, like us, were already short of supplies. This wasn't the first day of COVID-related sheltering in place. It was the first of the month, which for many of them was significant. That is when the government checks hit their bank accounts and arrive in the mail and they can finally buy supplies. So it was, imagine at the end of the month, here I'll put it in context around here, imagine if at the end of the month you lived in Guadalupe, Napomo did not exist, neither did the five cities area, your closest option was a Tascadero and not a Tascadero today. But those who've been around on the Central Coast long enough, a Tascadero in about 1991 significantly smaller, and Santa Maria, with Lompoc not existing and Santa Barbara being a little too far away, Santa Maria closed its doors to you as the people of Guadalupe. That would be tough. For 16 out of 21 days, Gallup closed its doors to its community, its county, people that paid taxes to cover things like the McKinley Courthouse and the Gallup hospitals. They were stopped at the border. You could drive through on the 40, but you could not drive into the city. That included, as I mentioned, water. For an entire weekend, it was not until Monday, it was Friday at 10 o'clock that the notice went out, 12 o'clock the city shut down. Most people didn't hear until 11 o'clock or later, noon, by the way, not midnight. Water was not available to them until Monday, sometime on Monday. And it was insufficient, by the way, when it did arrive, but at least it was an attempt when New Mexico and Gallup brought in some water trucks. You need to know this about the Navajo Reservation as a whole. Water has been an issue on the reservation for a while. Many times you've heard me mention that as we share. There are some reasons for that. It's remote. Sometimes there just isn't plumbing to parts of the reservation, it is often broken. There's an interesting fight, and it is almost unfixable at this point, between the federal government, who is in charge of it in some respects, the Native American government, who is in charge of it in some respects, and an individual property owner, or more likely property renter. When pipes break, whose responsibility is it to fix them? So everybody points at somebody else and the property owner is left with broken pipes. On top of that, it's hard as a plumber to start a business in such a remote place and survive. So, water is already an issue there, and then for a third reason, it's remote, often it's broken, and the third reason is even worse. A few years ago, there was a, a contamination of the water source. Uh, as actually the Navajo tribe had warned the EPA, this is going to be an issue. Do not take the steps that you are going, well, do not allow them, a mining company, to take the steps that they're going to take. This is going to be like the 1970s, when all of the nasty contaminated slurry and sludge is going to drain into our water source. And then, of course, it happened. And so we, when we would visit the Navajo Reservation, could take showers but could not drink the tap water. It had to be filtered. So most of the reservation 
well, our part of the reservation, I should say. It's a giant reservation. Our part of the reservation, including where we're at, which does have more resources, still go into Gallup to get their water. So when Gallup shuts down for a weekend, not having water is a major issue. You see, water is essential. We know that, but we've become so accustomed to water on tap, water that we usually disdain and don't like, we tend to buy, well, often, sometimes, whichever word applies, buy it because we don't like the tap water, use filtration, not because we have to, but because it tastes better. But we've become so accustomed to water on tap at the faucet or at a refrigerator that we don't think about its importance very often. Fortunately, your kids and my kids have not grown up wondering where their next glass of clean water will come from. That is not always the case on the Navajo Reservation. Most of the time it is. Most of the time they're confident. But that confidence comes because they go into places like Gallup to retrieve that water on a regular, often weekly basis. It isn't until a moment like Flint, Michigan, or the Navajo Reservation happens where it all goes wrong. But when we read the Old Testament verses that were in the prayer of confession that we just read, for that nation of Israel and for the history of the world, water was still and always a daily concern for significant parts of our globe. It, It still is, like the Navajo Reservation. I want you to remember that as I read this. Jeremiah 2, verse 4 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, it's all caps, that's Yahweh. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and my heritage and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what, that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has, become, has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the God of hosts. Did you see the water throughout that passage? There's a very cool, pun totally intended, a very cool water theme in there. It's the artistry and the aesthetic of Scripture. It's beautiful literature, especially if we read it in context where we see these things pop out. Here are some of the water moments. The anti-water, verse 6, drought. Look in those verse, that verse for the words that imply a lack of water as it describes drought. And then verse 10, it talks about Cyprus, a Mediterranean island. You have this sea, an amazing sea with beautiful beaches around you. Then in verse 18, it references the Nile and Egypt. 
And then, of course, the verse that we'll park in today, verse 13, has two of them. Let me read that one to you again. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. It starts with the positive. God is living water, the best of any kind, a mountain spring and brook where we get our bottled water. And even if what, does, what follows wasn't a broken cistern, cisterns are an inferior water source to a flowing mountain stream. If you had a choice, you would never take well water over Hume Lake's water. If you have ever been to Hume and tasted it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, if it's actual bottled mountain water, Hume's is better. They call it the source up there. And it's incredible. It's snow runoff and a mountain spring and it's spectacular water. In fact, at one point, Hume realized that so many kids were buying inferior bottled water that basically was just tap water bottled up down in L.A. and other places. And they finally said, as they looked at all these kids passing their drinking fountains that is straight from the source, they said, well, we might as well bottle our own. And so they started bottling the source, and that money went to help campers go to camp on scholarship. It's so much better living water. And, of course, remember, in John 4, Jesus references living water. God is not a cistern. He is living water, life-giving, tasty, amazing, vibrant, flavorful. He sustains us, and we need him on a daily basis. He's not a cistern. He's better than any water source. And we need to drink deeply of God and his word and ditch the dirty and draining waters of our broken cisterns. That's the title and the main theme or idea from today. God is our living water and we must drink of him. We must soak up his word to be sustained and live. But also because it's beautiful and amazing and Tasty. But then we have to look at the second part of that verse, the broken cisterns. They forsake God and they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You need to remember when this is being written, Jeremiah, the city is, or the, the nation is in exile. They've rejected God. There's the history of all of the kings that has played out. God in his patience and grace has given them plenty of time and he's finally disciplined them. And he's given them parameters to live by. And he said, now go seek the blessing of the nation that has taken you that you would be blessed. For I know the plans I have for you. This, this is all the context of these broken cisterns. But it's because of the broken cisterns that it's happened. God's people chased after other things. Now there are two ways that cisterns can be broken, by the way. One is leaking. That's what he's talking about here. It can't hold water. The other is contaminated. While it focuses on the leaking pic picture, certainly some of these are contaminated cisterns too. So you can think of them either way. If you're struggling, though, to grasp the concept of a broken cistern, because we don't use that word very often... Uh, there are pictures that will pop up or already have of me standing in a cistern. When we were in Israel, there are cisterns everywhere. There, I'm in the green. My wife's behind me. You're basically, it's just a cave in the ground that they dug out to hold water. It's a reservoir in the ground, like those big tanks that you see, the, the plastic ones that we have. They made them out of stone in the ground because they kept it contained. But if it leaked, you lost your water. And if it became contaminated, it was no good. Then you had to find a way to take the water out clean it out, and that was never going to happen, so you just abandon it. If you're struggling to grasp that concept of a broken sister, just think of a dirty well or leaky pipes and poison water, water that's no good. Not just you don't like the flavor of water in L.A., which is where I spent some of my time growing up, but it's actually harmful for you like Flint, Michigan, or the Navajo Reservation when it became contaminated it's getting better out there, by the way, but most of the people don't trust the water, and for good reason, at least in the past. 
These are their broken cisterns. If you want to look through that passage, in verse 5, they abandoned God. They didn't follow Him like they were supposed to. In fact, they went after worthless things and worthlessness itself. They pursued that instead of God. We are made as people to pursue God. Romans 3 says none of us do. Nobody seeks out God, and we're all condemned for it. Fortunately, He shows us grace, and He saves us. But they pursued worthlessness, and it actually says that His people became worthless because of it. We're no longer serving their purpose to their God or to the people around them. In verse 8, it calls out specifically the religious leaders, prophets, priests, and king. Remember, the king is now gone. But the king was supposed to lead them. He was supposed to write his own copy of the law. The priests were there doing daily sacrifices, but they had lost their purpose and their reason for it. They weren't doing what they were supposed to, and the prophets were actually prophesying falsely, especially in Jeremiah's time. They were saying the opposite of what God was telling his people. In fact, some of them were encouraging a broken cistern in and of itself of going to Egypt when God had said, don't go there. Now, you have to remember their religious leaders also had a political and a social role and dynamic to them to a degree that modern-day U.S. pastors do not have in most settings. So it isn't only religious leaders. Again, King was a religious leader and a political social leader. But their leaders had failed them. Their leaders had become broken cisterns. Not bad inherently, by the way. Some of those God had put in place. But they'd become bad, leaking water or contaminated. In verse 11, it mentions false idols. They had somehow changed their gods. They'd given up the true God, Yahweh, who had brought them out of Egypt. And they were looking around for and grabbing other gods like Baal. And they were worshiping him. And their worship, by the way, was offensive. If you go back and study their worship, Pastor Benji has mentioned this in the past. It isn't just a false god. It's a false god worshiped through sinful actions. So it's twice as bad. But they had changed gods, which is the only bad that they needed. In Old Testament times, by the way, this didn't happen. And when it did happen, or if it did happen, what it meant was this, that that god, not just the people, were defeated and powerless, and that god was dead. He was a little g god. Not all caps, Yahweh, Lord. It meant their God didn't exist or no longer existed or was weak. In verse 18, they were turning to Egypt in place of God. That had not only theological and historical ramifications, but it was a socio-political solution to a spiritual problem. They were looking away from God for the answer, and they were looking at their old captives for the answer. In Egypt. And then in verse 19, they were lacking fear of the Lord. They abandoned God in verse 5. They lacked the fear of the Lord. Most of those were religious broken cisterns, but don't miss that they did have social and political aspects to them. Here's the thing for Israel, life is like a casserole, it isn't a segmented cafeteria plate like we try to live life sometimes here in the U.S. You didn't just compartmentalize it. It was all mashed together. And Israel, like us, they needed to drink deeply of God and His Word, and they needed to ditch the dirty and draining waters of their broken cisterns. But now we need to look at some of our broken cisterns. Broken cisterns, issues. Maybe these are symptoms of broken cisterns rather than cisterns themselves. These are things in our culture and even church culture that we turn to in place of God or that we overvalue or that we rely on and drift into worshiping in a way that is inappropriate them. And I've got to warn you, this might get uncomfortable. No, it's not might get uncomfortable. This is going to get uncomfortable. It has been an uncomfortable set of weeks here in the United States and for good reason. And we are just tapping the surface of some of those things. There are many of them. We have a wonderful country. Please don't get me wrong. 
but it is not, nor has it ever been perfect. Our culture is a broken cistern, except where we rely on God. And even in church, where we hopefully do rely on God, we still have some issues that we need to take care of. By the way, you probably thought of a bunch of things that you hoped I either would or wouldn't mention right now. Those are our broken cisterns. They probably popped up into your head. That doesn't mean you have to agree with me on everything, but we need to pay attention to that, and there's some cautions we need before we tackle them too. U.S. is not the biblical Israel. Please don't misunderstand me for that. In fact, significant problems have come out of our history when we have embraced things like manifest destiny, acting as if God has commissioned us that way, treating the globe like it's just a game of risk. We are certainly not the only point of history in the world that this has been true of, but we have sometimes been guilty of it ourselves. The other caution would be this. These are all tweets. I say this with my youth group a lot. These are all tweets. If you don't know what a tweet is, think a bumper sticker. They all have essays that go with them. And the tweets are easy to fight over or misunderstand. But the theological essays are the important parts to think through. What does God have to say about this topic, even if I disagree with what Pastor James said? For some of you, I will go too far, and for some of you, I will not go nearly far enough. But here's my list, or at least some of them. And please keep in mind, while some of these, like racism, are bad, that's more of a system, I'm sorry, symptom than a broken cistern. Those are other things related to it. Some of them, like government, can be very good. Governments endorsed by God. Christians should not be anarchists. There's no room for that in Scripture. They can be very good, but because there are sinful people involved, they just often break down. Especially when we as God's people turn to them as the ultimate answer. Instead of turning to God, we cannot trade God for anything else. And yet we need to look at some of our issues. Our culture is begging us to look at issues, and by the way, we as the church have the answer. We can't ever forget that. So let's talk a little bit about racism. Part of the problem is thinking that it's entirely dealt with in the past, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or the 1800s. We still deal with it. Wednesday, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag And that was followed by the inevitable freakout over NASCAR banning the Confederate flag. While some of us might have fond thoughts of the Dukes of Hazzard and the General Lee, it is tone deaf of us to ignore the African-American community that has a very different understanding of that flag and has tried for decades to communicate that to us. We need to at least pause and listen. If that's a hard thing for you to think through, especially with that one, one, please come talk to us as pastors, but let me give you a little picture. When we lived in the parsonage, we had a big breakfast bar, and I love puns. So we ended up putting a picture, a big poster of breakfast at Tiffany's, because my wife's name is Tiffany, and it was the breakfast bar. So it's breakfast at Tiffany's. I hate the movie, by the way. It's awful. Sorry if that's your favorite movie. Like, I don't just hate it for the reason I'm about to bring up. I just hate it in general. So again, if if that's your favorite movie, I'm sorry. But one of the reasons I don't like it is there is an awful stereotype by Mickey Rooney in it of Asians. It's offensive. Even he has come out and said it's offensive, and he's sorry he played that character. It isn't that he just played an Asian person. It is how he played an Asian person as well. It was the caricature and the stereotype, and it was offensive. I didn't think about it when I put the poster up. I just liked the pun, breakfast at Tiffany's. But one day we had the students over, and one of our Asian students asked me about the poster. And I realized he had a different take on the poster than my pun. And I had to process that for a while. That poster doesn't exist on the walls of our house anymore. Because I had to recognize this is a student I love and he sees pain in that poster where I just see a pun. 
And the pun was a good pun. If you like dad jokes, it was terrific. But the poster needed to get pulled down. I wish I could say I took it down that minute. I don't remember. I don't know if I tried to argue with it. And that's sometimes the problem. I might not have listened immediately to my student. It might have taken me a while to come about to that point. But we need to listen and hear those moments. I certainly never wanted when I bought the poster and put it up one of my students to be hurt when he was standing near our breakfast bar. So eventually when I realized that, whenever it was, and I honestly can't remember, it was easy to take the poster down. That hurts my student. I don't need it. I don't even like the movie. But even if I had, it just would have been harder to remove perhaps, but no less needed. Connelisa Rice wrote an article last week, I believe it was, well, last week, going back a little farther. But she says this, quote, unless and until we are honest that race is still an anchor around our country's neck, that shadow will never be lifted, end quote. Early in the article, uh, it's in the Washington Post, by the way, June 4th. Beyond justice for Floyd, systemic change is necessary to make our institutions more just. We need to listen to Condoleezza and others who are trying to get our attention and say, here's my perspective. Here's what my experience has been. By the way, before you get hung up on the term systemic change, a lot of Caucasians do, let me give you the two alternate terms for it. One's theological and one's biblical. The, the theological one is this, total depravity. Anybody who believes in total depravity should not have a hard time acknowledging that a systemic issue might exist. You might not agree with somebody else about which ones are systemic. But if you hold that theology that man is broken and sinful and needs a savior, it's not hard to say that systems can be too. That's the theological one. Here's the biblical one, and it comes from Jeremiah 2. It's called a broken cistern. It doesn't hold water or it's contaminated. It's something we turn to that can't hold water or that water is contaminated when we ought to have found living water in God. I had this thought last night as for some reason I was thinking of, of Amazing Grace, a song written by John Newton, a former slave owner, slave trader. We cannot sing and celebrate Amazing Grace and ignore black voices. It's part of the song. Not only is it part of the original song, when he's talking about what a wretch he is, those of us who love some of the modern adaptations of it, my chains are gone, I've been set free. That addition is pulling on that picture even more, and yes, it goes to the spiritual chain, but we cannot ignore the context of a song that is maybe the most famous and liked hymn of all time. Not when John Newton would say we shouldn't, and he wrote it. It's hard right now to separate racism and politics and government, so we're going to talk about that next. All too often, these are not our friends. And if you struggle with that statement, your government has been arguing over whether or not you should, I'm sorry, could, not should, whether or not you could go to church. Pause and think about that for a minute. Not just it's inadvisable to go to church or not wear a mask, but whether or not you could. That was the ninth district's determination that we could not. So that shouldn't be offensive. Well, that should be offensive to, to you. But the concept that, the pol that politicians and government is not always our friend should not. Despite the founding documents that state our right to go, that's actually been a discussion. And there have been many that think that that's a good discussion to have. That's a hard thing to grasp 
that our culture has gotten to that point, by the way. Don't get me wrong. Please don't think that culture is the answer. Let's talk about, oh, I'm sorry. Despite that, we need more Christians doing things like the end campaign. I encourage you to go look it up. Something pulled together by a number of Christians. You may not agree with everything that they say, but they're trying to wade through how to be a Democrat or a Republican and honor God instead of just fighting with each other. So I'd encourage you to go check them out. Let's talk about something one step removed from that. Progressivism and conservatism. Neither is synonymous with faith. Neither is synonymous with faith. One party or one ideology does not have a lock on biblical truth. Again, that's a tweet bumper sticker that is not an essay. I would love to have the essay conversation with you if you want to. Faith is sometimes progressive, it's sometimes conservative, but it is always God-honoring and biblical. That's a little more, a little glimpse of that essay. As Christians, we don't fit into any party, and we never will, ever, not 100%. We might fit more into one than the other, but you might be shocked to find that a Christian disagrees with you on which one we fit more into and for what reasons. We need to address that and think that through. It has been good for me, it's been hard in some ways, but good for me to bump into some of our less conservative friends in the last few years and think through what are they seeing that I don't. And by the way, I'm still pretty conservative. Some of you might disagree with that. (laughs) But it's been good to see their heart and go, this person loves Christ, what are they seeing Or why, better, this is more, why are they seeing it and going that way when I have gone this way? Capitalism and socialism. Okay, before you okay boomer me or whippersnapper me, I'm a buster and I'm Gen X. I don't fit into either one of those categories. I'm not old enough to be a boomer and I'm not young enough to get whippersnappered. And the awesome part of that is I used it with our youth group and none of them had even heard that expression. So... Older people, we need to start using whippersnapper a little bit more just so they get used to it. Because they are dropping OK Boomer on way too many moments right now. And if you don't know what that is, it's you. That's what it is. It's a dismissive, and they'll argue that too. It's a dismissive to say, you have an old idea, and I don't need to pay attention to you. Just like whippersnapper is a, oh, you're a young buck, and I don't need to pay attention to you. Well, we need to stop dismissing people. But capitalism and socialism, please don't call either the biblical model nor limit it to either of them. Here would be my my statement on it. You can phrase it however you want. Here's the biblical model, both Old and New Testament. Morally restrained, socially minded, free market, you can debate whether to use that word, with a framework of responsible profit and mitigated losses and a foundation of faith, family, and community connectedness. Capitalism does not sum that up. Good capitalism drifts towards it. Socialism doesn't sum that up. The dream of socialism might come close. Except all too often, socialism and communism start by throwing faith out. Young people, please pay attention to that historically. Neither is our friend inherently. Let's talk presidents. Don't worry. I'm going to talk about everybody. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and both Clintons are not our savior, ever. Don't talk about them as such. They could be great leaders or bad leaders, but they are never savior. We have one savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And with apologies to the kids of the 80s and the young voters of the 60s, if we resurrected Ronald Reagan or JFK, they could not be our saviors. And if we're being honest, we were unaware of and or ignored their flaws the first time around. Those of you old enough to remember, Camelot was a little too much like the reality of Camelot rather than the dream of Camelot, as all too often America is itself. It's going to hurt some people. Patriotism. I'm not saying don't be patriotic, but I want you to hear this. 
if you, if you tune me out, hear at least this one. If your heartstrings are tugged more this coming 4th of July than they were last Sunday's communion, you have a broken cistern. Last Sunday was the coolest communion that I can remember in a long time. I had communion when I was married. I had communion at a camp that I remember before we came here. And last, last week's communion is probably the third most memorable one or tied with those. Because we hadn't had it for a while. And we were together. And if 4th of July out-celebrates that moment, you don't understand communion. Now, I understand fireworks are cooler than a little cracker and a, and a little cup of juice. I get that. But the moment is cooler at communion than blowing up your neighborhood could ever be. And hopefully you don't do that this 4th of July. Even the American dream, as great as it is, and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to own your house and have a successful career and a quiet and peaceful life. In fact, Scripture would affirm some of those things in Jeremiah and in Paul's epistles. But what if God's dream for you includes battles or new love instead of boardwalk or a New York penthouse? What if God's calling you to the place of the city that you never go to? Because that's often his dream. Go get to know that neighbor and not just the neighbor that's easy to hang out with. There's nothing wrong with the American dream, but we need to keep it in perspective. I had to speed it up. There's so many other things that I had on here. Before I turn to the church, we got to talk about one more aspect of our culture, the justice system from unnecessary 911 phone calls to unjust convictions or unjust non-convictions and everything in between. We need to quit treating it as a savior and look at where it's either leaky or contaminated. And as Christians, we have to leave the, lead the way in that. But we also need to talk about our church. After all, that's the focus of verse 13 where it calls out religious leaders. I'll start with a simple one. If your plan for church is to do it without connection, this one's a little more like a misused reservoir. The church as a whole is more like a reservoir than a, than a cistern anyways. But if, if you're going to try to do church without connecting with the people of the church, it's a, it's a misuse of the church. You won't be satisfied unless you find connection in a small group or a Sunday school class, or serving along others in a ministry. If all you do is show up late to church and leave early, and you don't connect with people. It's a little bit like trying to hammer in a screw. It just doesn't work. And it might work for a time, but it's not going to last. Moral therapeutic deism, that's it's kind of even before that, that's trying to have like the good side of God without really paying attention to God being active and in our lives. If you don't know what moral therapeutic deism is, it used to be called civil religion. It's the concept of, well, we're Christians because we're, we're Americans. Yeah, but you hate church. How can, you, how can you be a Christian? You hate God. How can you be a Christian? This one's a little tougher. Evangelicalism and even Baptist. If you don't understand how and why these have become difficult terms for some Christians, you need to start studying and listening more. Even some Christians struggle with them. Don't get me wrong, I'm pretty Baptistic, but even denominations are pulling baptism out of the name. And speaking of Baptists, it used to be a hot topic, and it's no longer a hot topic. It's just summarily dismissed. People just don't even want to hear what a Baptist has to say. We need to think about that. How about some theology? Are you Reformed? Great. Are you not Reformed? That's great, too. <laughs> you don't have to be Reformed to come here. The pastors are. But are you Reformed and angry? That's not great. If you're reformed, always comes out in a mad way, something's wrong there. Or, and this really comes from a, 
Shailen tweet that I saw the other day, are you reformed and racist? Sadly, racism hasn't left the church either. We have to deal with it within our own walls too. That's why we need to talk about it, as uncomfortable as it might be. Another theology. Are you letting go and letting God, but then letting the person next to you have it all the time? Just whacking them across the head because they're not a good enough Christian and they don't do this or they don't do that. Maybe you're all about social justice and you forgot God and the gospel. There are plenty of churches that that's true. It's great to address everything that we've talked about, but it's a broken cistern if we left God out of it. Even addressing issues can become its own broken cistern. On the other hand, and this is often an issue for evangelical churches and Baptist churches and conservatives, holiness without any social impact is not holiness. It's got to have a response and impact today. Not got to, sorry. It's going to have an impact today if you are following Christ. It's inescapable. The reason for that is we're ambassadors praying for a blessing upon Babylon. We're not Christians hiding out in a compound. We walk out these doors and we go to schools and other workplaces and we take Christ with us. Or we've forgotten the most important part by leaving Christ at home. Finally, a few that are tricky to talk about but we have to address. And part of this is one broken system for our culture is the sexual revolution is terrifying how much that's crept into the church. But for the church, it is sometimes purity culture and how much we have worshipped it. Obviously, holiness is a good thing, but how much we have worshipped purity culture as a backlash to the sexual revolution. And often, by the way, that is left to its own or led to its own perfection culture where we pretend to be perfect people or we just talk in a way that makes others think that we are perfect people. And that includes the misperception that we will have perfect marriages, perfect romance, and perfect kids. Most of us know our kids well enough to know that's not true. And if you think your kid is perfect, you need to spend a little more time with them. They aren't. They're wonderful. They're amazing. Children in the room, we love you. But you are not perfect. Just think of the last time, if you're old enough, you rolled your eyes at your mom. I don't come up with any other challenge to that because that's the only one I need. Okay, for guys, sometimes, when was the last time you told your mom, oh, I'll take the trash out, and then you played two more hours of video games, completely forgot, and then got wondered why she was mad at you when you still hadn't taken the trash out. Sometimes I use that one. There's the last one, Church 2. That's the Me Too movement within the church walls trying to address church abuse. I'd encourage you to go check out what Rachel Den Hollander says about this. Or really, if you don't want to read that much, just go into the comments anytime she tweets or posts something on social media and it will tell you how much of an issue it is for the church. Because the way she is treated is not Christ-like. You don't have to agree with everything she says, but I hope you're never making those comments as you disagree with her. Terrifyingly, by the way, these aren't exhaustive lists. They're just some of the broken cisterns and issues that are in both our culture and our church culture. But here's the thing. If I've lost you at all, anything we turn to in place of God is a broken cistern. Even things that might be good or could be good if they weren't trying to kick God off the throne. We have the answer in Christ, and even we need to drink deeply of God and his word and ditch the dirty and draining waters of our broken cisterns or where we can repair them, but we can no longer ignore them. And as I just said, if I've lost you, come back to me now. I'm going to try to wrap this up. First, let's go back to that first part. It was easier. Be captivated by the creative beauty in Scripture. Be in love with God's word. If you love God's word and it is soaking into you, it's inevitable that it's going to affect things. That doesn't mean you agree with every Christian. But God will have his impact on your life through the Holy Spirit as you read your word and are captivated by it. I am confident of that. So that's one. Even the cool parts, like where it has a theme of water flowing through it like a poem, 
catch those things. It's beautiful. That's an easy one. This one's harder. Watch out for broken cisterns. They're everywhere. And here's the saddest part. We love running to them. God's people in the time of Jeremiah had run to them, and God has to call them out for it. All are bad when they displace God, no matter how good it could be. Some are inherently bad. Contaminated water that poisons if consumed. Racism is inherently bad. Few people overtly turn to it, but there are many things that highlight we still have work to do in regards to racism, that it's a symptom of some broken cisterns. Some might be repaired, but they're leaking water and they need work. We can't ignore them. Along those lines, dealing with some issues and fixing them, these might seem small steps, but here's some things you can do right now to address some broken cisterns that exist in our country or our culture. Number one, you might have seen the green barrels, barrels that say Navajo Supply. Help us out. We don't get to do a mission trip this year, but, which was hard for me to come to grips with. But Tiff and I just found out, sorry for the short notice, that we get to do a supply drop on Thursday. Wednesday, Thursday, we'll be driving out. Tuesday night after youth group. If you have some supplies that you can drop off today through Tuesday night before we leave, drop them off. They were in um, the newsletter that came out. You can talk to me about them. But a place we partner with, Res Refuge, it's basically like a boys and girls community club, has been taking care packages to people around the reservation. That's one thing you can do to help some people that sometimes haven't had water haven't, like us, haven't had toilet paper. Unlike us, they haven't had 20 stores that they could go buy from. Especially when Gallup closes its doors. Or, by the way, where we go, Gallup is over 45 minutes away for them, and they don't all have cars that function or a way to get there. So those care packages, community care packages that Rev's Refuge is doing have been amazingly helpful. We get to participate with that. This, by the way, you want to know why we keep going to the same place year after year after year after year? It's because of this. That's, that has our hearts. My heart, uh, the heart of a bunch of my kids and staff, the heart of a bunch of you and my parents' church. I was just talking to my mom. They've seen some of that. They know we're pit stopping in L.A. And they're, they, we're asking if we're going to have room in the vehicle. And I hope not, but I hope so, if that makes sense. I hope it's too full, and I hope that we have room to pack it in anyways. That's why we keep going back. It changes from a short-term ministry to a ministry partner friendship that we have with Navajo people. And think about the history of our nation, how significant that is. That's why we keep going back. In May, I was chomping at the bit to go, and I couldn't go. There was no place to stay. It was locked down. And it just took us a while. But it was like, I can't tell you how happy I am that I get to drive, drive there, drop some stuff, and I won't be there probably more than 30 minutes. But those are people that I love. Those are my friends. Those are people that we partner with. And that's why we keep going back. If you're able to help us, there's also a link if you want to donate directly to them. Just type in their community care packs. It will go very possibly some people that your students have known, and that needs some help. Pray for and consider supporting a guy named Seth and another guy, Daniel, but Seth is the one with support. He works with High Life Youth Ministries in Window Rock, and he's with Across Nations. It's a Christian ministry that is there year-round. If we have anything left over, well, sorry, left over, or two more than we can take, by the way, we'll just find a place like Central Coast Rescue Mission to donate to. Speaking of which, though, don't confuse these two moments. There's a little bit of overlap, but the Central Coast Rescue Mission for the next couple weeks is going to be collecting some shower supplies. Keep an eye out and an ear out for that to see what our community needs. Here's the other one, though. Find your own way to highlight God and grace and the gospel as the answer. A little bit like Charles Schultz and the story of how Franklin joined the Peanuts. Go look that one up. Here's another one. This should be really easy, and sadly, we don't do it enough. Listen, especially to Christian voices. Find some Christians 
who are African Americans talking about some of the issues going on. Follow them on social media. See what they have to say. And where you don't understand something before you dismiss it, pause and ask yourself what they're seeing that you don't. If you can do it without drifting into often baseless criticism of rap, I understand many of you don't like the art form, but go listen to Lecrae's Dirty Water going way back to the 1990s, even if you don't like the second word of their name, Gospel Gangsters, Tears of a Black Man. Just about anything by the rapper Propaganda. And you can listen to the whole album called The Narrative by Show Baraka. They're all spectacular. They're not the only ones addressing issues along racist lines, but they have amazing things to say. Order and read the Ant Campaign's upcoming book. Those are all Christians, by the way. Here's one that isn't, but it's, it's good and worth watching. Just Mercy is free, streaming free on many platforms. Go, go watch it. Talks about injustices in our justice system. Most importantly, seek out living water. Seek out God. Again, Jeremiah 2 and John 4 both use the living water picture and it tells us that we need to drink deeply of God and his word and ditch the dirty and draining waters of our broken cisterns. Let's pray. Lord, mighty, holy, we praise your name. You are wonderful and gracious and patient with us. And you also tell us to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. To walk humbly with you, our God. Lord, guide us. As a nation, guide us. Our nation is hurting and it needs you. Our area is hurting and it needs you. Lord, we as a church always need you, hurting or not. But even at times we hurt and we need you. Help us to never turn to something else in place of you, but to always run to you as we seek help. Amen.